This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, how is your work going this week? I have to admit, it's been kind of an emotional week. We just recorded the, I want to say the final episode of The Waves, but the last episode before we go on a hiatus that was caused by sort of COVID-related cost-cutting. And I just, I mean, I love the show. I've done it a long time. I love working out my thoughts and ideas with Christina, Nicole and Marsha, who've been my co-hosts for the last year or so. And most of all, though, I'm realizing I'll kind of miss that biweekly rhythm. I think that rhythm is an underrated factor in creative expression. If you have to write a column every Friday, eventually you get into just this thing where you have ideas on Tuesday and you flesh them out on Wednesday and you get into it with your editor on Thursday. And and I think the more you can create rhythms like that, I think it can be really productive. Do you have stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, I feel like we're starting to do that with this show. Of, you know, when is an interview being recorded? When are we doing, you know, this stuff mm-hmm. before the episodes? And, and and it really does start to shape your mental process of what the of what the week looks like. So so absolutely. I I try to be a little less regimented about creative writing mm. just because I don't want to feel like neurotically beholden to a ritual. Yeah. Uh, for today's episode, you spoke with opera singer Jamie Barton. Are you a secret opera buff, June? I don't think I qualify as a buff because I really like <laughs> opera, but I don't know a ton about it. And I think in those high arts, there's this feeling that you have to be an expert before you can kind of ally yourself with this art. Um, but when I lived in Seattle, I subscribed to the Seattle Opera and one of my closest and oldest friends runs the costume shop there. So it was a thing we did together. I had an opera buddy. And at that point, at least, the Seattle Opera was a Wagnerian company. And I surprised myself by realizing that I love Wagner. Uh, I've seen three full ring cycles done on the proper Wagnerian schedule. And I have to tell you, I'm familiar with quite a few of the arts, but there is no experience that is better as an audience member than the ring. About the sixth hour of Gotadamarung, you are guaranteed to leave your body, and it it is like nothing else. (laughs) Wait, wait. You're not an opera buff, but you've seen the ring in its entirety. Yeah, but Isaac, not in Beirut. You know, so oh, that's well, what really you counts, go. you know. Yep. Yeah. If you haven't gone to the theater he had specifically built to realize his visions, then yeah. are you even really listening to opera? I mean, are you really? Um, but for Jamie Barton, I actually heard of her first when a British friend told me about a feminist recital that she did with her collaborator and pianist, Kathleen Kelly. And I loved what I read about that. And so I got to make a piece for the late lamented Studio 360, for which Barton and Kelly actually came to New York and performed in studio. And so I was sat there while 
she was singing, which is kind of amazing. I mean, opera singing is just a weird thing to do with your body and to be up close when somebody's doing it is really, really kind of amazing. So I got to have that experience and I started buying opera tickets again. Oh, wow. So, so can you tell us a little bit about her and her career? Yeah. So she is one of the leading mezzo-sopranos of the moment. She was the featured soloist at the last night of the proms in London last fall. That's the biggest classical music event of the year in Britain. A couple of months later, she played the title role of Orfeo in the Metropolitan Opera's production of Gluck's Orfeo et Euridice, um, which we talk about in the interview. And right now, if it weren't for COVID, she would be giving her Elisabetta in Maria Stuada by Donizetti at the Met. I don't know if there is a typical background for opera singers, but if there was, she wouldn't have it. She grew up on a farm in rural Georgia. She came to sing in relatively late for someone at her level in the art. And her breakthroughs have come in competitions. Uh, in 2013, she was only the second person to win both the Song Prize and the Singer of the World Prize in the same year at the Cardiff Singer of the World competition. And that really took her career to the next level. She has a, an amazing voice. I highly recommend that curious listeners check out the Studio 360 piece we did, a link to which you can find in our show notes, or search YouTube for the duet that she does with Joyce Di Donato. It was a benefit concert, and they sing together Sonata Lagrima from Handel's Giulio Cesare, and it's amazing. She's a fantastic actress, as well as being a great singer. And I have to admit, though, that... One of the reasons I'm really drawn to her is her politics and her attitude. She's openly bisexual. She's spoken out about the way female performers' bodies are policed in the opera world. And she has a really fantastic Instagram presence. She's a great ambassador for opera. Well, that's great. I cannot wait to hear what she has to say about all of this and her process. Let's take a listen. We'll get back to the interview soon, but first... Some words from our sponsors. So one of the things that came into Start Relief in the last couple of weeks, we're taping this on March 26th, is that singers like you, uh, soloists, um, the people whose names on the bill make people like me buy tickets, are freelancers. How does that work? Yeah, we singers are basically freelancers or independent contractors. You know, we, we have managers that help us kind of field the requests at some point or help us get auditions at earlier points in our career. But really beyond that, uh, you know, our managers are there to help us negotiate the contracts going forward. Every house has different typical contract offerings. And yeah, it's it's all on a case-by-case kind of basis. Okay, so let's focus, for example, last fall, you played the lead Orfeo in the Metropolitan Opera's Orfeo et Euridice. How much time did you spend preparing for that? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, of course, you know, we, we have the rehearsal time and that that was about three weeks. If you've ever seen that kind of meme that has the picture of the iceberg and you see about, you know, 90% of the iceberg underneath the water and the 10% above, you know, 10% is what people see and the 90% is what happens. That is so very much the case <laughs> in the in the mm. case of an opera singer. You know, it, it's uh, weeks and months of preparation leading into it. We have to show up on the first day of work completely memorized. You know, so that is a lot of work when you're singing in a language that isn't your own. Um, you, you're not yeah. just singing in that language. You're also 
storytelling in that language. You know, my personal goal is to always be able to storytell in a way that if I'm singing in somebody's native tongue, they won't be distracted by the fact that I'm not a native speaker, you know? Mm -hmm. So that takes a long time, just getting the words in, getting the music in, uh, developing the character, and then also staying flexible because when you go in for that first day of rehearsal, the director could have completely different ideas about who you are, or it could be a concept production. Orfeo is a perfect example. Uh, It's not exactly a traditional Orfeo. My character was actually based on Johnny Cash. So, you know, (laughs) thinking of it from uh, the point of view of not just I'm a woman on stage playing a man, but I'm a woman on stage playing Johnny Cash. You know, what what goes into that? (laughs) You know, it's, I, I would say, easily two months of solid work And by solid work, I mean getting up in the morning and sitting down at the piano and just going and trying to basically memorize a book in a different language. Yeah. You're famous, I think, for your interpretation and for your acting. And, you know, maybe when people think of operas, they think of Italian, French, but you are somewhat famous for productions in Czech, for example. Rusalka is in Czech, right? Yeah, yeah. The, so I mean, how do you learn that? <laughs> With the help of a lot of people. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, when an opera singer starts going to college, because quite honestly, we always joke that opera singers and medical doctors are the ones who leave college with the most student debt. (laughs) We're just in college forever. But even in the first year, one of the first classes that they put us in are classes for diction, specifically for Mm. the, usually in undergrad, we're talking the main languages that we sing in. So English is one of those, German, French, Italian. If you're really lucky, maybe Russian, if you went to a school that has a Russian person there that can teach it. But then there are other languages that aren't standard. And so they don't really get a full class. And so whenever I'm approaching a language that I don't already have some sort of familiarity with, I reach out to different diction coaches that specialize in those languages. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, when I knew that I was going to be doing Rusalka for the first time, I took that opportunity to learn the Dvorak Gypsy songs in Czech. I knew that I was doing them on recitals. Mm -hmm. It would be a really great practice to just go ahead and get used to the language before I actually hit the stage at the Metropolitan Opera singing (laughs) one of the most iconic mezzo roles, Yeji Baba. So, um, you know, just getting a little bit of pre-experience with it is really, really, for me, key to making it be able to live. But yeah, the the help from diction coaches, it's, I'm telling you, this is not a solo career at all. You know, this, the opera industry is 1000% a team sport. And those diction coaches really make a huge difference between how, once again, native speakers will be able to enjoy it versus not. Yeah. And I don't want to sound crass, but I am, I'm asking this because I really want to understand the nature of freelance, but you have to pay for those diction coaches, right? That's not typically what is covered by the opera company where you'll be singing a particular role. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When you're in prep mode for all of this, you're definitely paying for everything. You know, as a freelancer, I'm paying for my voice lessons. If I need to 
get with a pianist to help me solidify getting something in my brain, I'm paying for that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, working on style, I'm paying a coach for that. Working on diction, I'm paying the coaches Mm -hmm. for that. So Mm -hmm. there are a lot of expenses that go into just preparing something to arrive for the first day of rehearsal and be in a working place. Now, that being said, the opera companies almost always do have diction coaches that they employ for the run of the show. Uh So those people will be in the room. They'll be with us in real time, taking notes on what we can do better, helping coach us through it. But yeah, all of that preparation is really up to us financially as well as just getting the work done. Wow. You have this repertoire of roles that you know. How do you kind of let opera companies know what roles you know or what you're willing to learn? Like, would a company come to you and say, hey, I don't think you've sung Amneris in Aida before, but would you like to? I mean, is that how it works? Or is there some kind of other way of communication for things like that? It's less that there is any sort of formal communication and more that we're in the age of internet and word gets around. You know, so like if I sing a role and it goes really well, then I notice that I start getting a lot more offers for that particular role. Uh. You know, it, usually if if there is a role, and it's funny that you mentioned Omneris because that's a perfect example. Omneris is one of those roles that it just takes years, literally, for your voice to <laughs> both... Uh, physiologically get to a place of being able to sing it. And also for me, I needed or still need more experience singing Verdi mezzo roles Mm. in order to be able Mm. to sing Omneris. So I fielded requests for Omneris for years at this point, you know, probably six or seven years. Mm. And I've said no to just about every offer that's come along because I just didn't feel like Either I was at a point of being ready for it when the production was supposed to happen or Mm -hmm. that it wasn't in the right kind of place. Omneris is a hugely challenging role. It is, I mean, it is a barn burner of a role, but Mm. it is really, really challenging. So I knew that I, I wanted to approach it in a theater that was a bit smaller Uh, than some of the theaters that I sing in in the United States because, of course, we don't use microphones at all. You know, so it really is totally analog. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, so I wanted a smaller theater. I was hoping for one that was friendly, you know, somewhere I've worked before that I've got a good relationship with. Mm -hmm. uh, And then hoping for good colleagues, you know, supportive people that I've worked with before that I can trust, that I know Mm. are out there um, as team members rather than as solo artists trying to, you know, steal the stage. and I'm I'm very very lucky. I've I've managed to find that situation actually, and so I have my first Omneris coming up in a few years. Oh. But to really go back to your question, companies don't really tend to go. You know, would would you be interested in learning this? They more or less just send a request to my manager and say, "Hi, we'd like to offer Jamie this," and it's up to us to say yay or nay, huh. uh, depending on whatever factors there are. Well, you just mentioned, you know, some years ahead, opera singers, especially ones like you who are, you know, on the star side of things, book many years out. Can you tell me how far out you're booked? 
Yeah, I think right now I, I definitely have stuff on the books in 2023. I think that we have some uh, interest in 2024 as well. So it, it really wow. depends. It, it depends a lot on the opera house. Um, mm-hmm. Some houses are able to book further out um, and others are smaller and they're not able to book that far out. And it's also dependent on the project. You know, if you're doing a Barber of mm. Seville, which, by the way, is something I would never sing. I, my voice just doesn't do what Rossini wants it to do. But, <laughs> but um, you know, if, it, for something like a Barber of Seville, they can book one or two years in advance pretty easily. But for something like a ring cycle, mm. uh, a big Wagner mm. project or something like that, or something that pulls a lot of resources like full chorus, a whole bunch of actors, you know, they, they're going to have to employ a lot of people to be up there on stage. Those are the projects that they're kind of the specialty voice yeah. type projects usually. And for those, the houses that can do them, book as far out as they can because they want specific people uh, to be singing these principal roles. And the earlier you can get those people on the books, the easier it is to secure that they can actually be there and do that. The closer you get, you know, it's it's trickier to get the cast that you want. Now, There's a sort of a stereotype of the opera singer being very careful with the voice, which I totally understand. It's your instrument. It's like a violinist being careful with the Stradivarius. But, you know, on long plane rides, are there things that you have to do to protect your instrument? Absolutely. Absolutely. First and foremost, hydration and sleep are a huge key in terms of vocal health for me. Uh, So keeping up with that on the regular is really, really important. But when I'm on a long flight, or I know that I'm going to be on a long flight, I wear what is called a humidifier. (laughs) which looks like a medical mask, but all it does is filter the air that's coming in and recycle the moisture in your own breath so that you don't go dry. And when your anatomy gets dry, that is when you get sick. It's like every single, you know, fall and winter in New York when they turn on the steam heat in the buildings and all of a sudden you wake up and your, your whole mouth and throat and everything is just dry as a bone that's when you start to get sick because that's a pretty ripe opportunity for any sort of germs to just, you know, go and <laughs> multiply. Whoa. Yeah, so so keeping moisture in your breath or in your breathing on the plane is, is something that I've discovered is really, really, really important uh, to keeping healthy. And I've noticed such a difference that, you know, I'm, I should just say, you know, humidifier, if you want, <laughs> want an opera singer to be a spokesperson, I'm right here. Um, <laughs> it is, it's so funny, though, because I get on a plane and, well, of course, you know, right now with the coronavirus, I can't mm, even imagine yeah. not having a mask on a plane. But yeah. in regular travel times, you know, I'll get on a plane and it is, it, people don't want to talk to you. People, you know, the <laughs> <laughs> they want to sit seats away. It's perfect. It's oh. a wonderful, wonderful tool. <laughs> it's wonderful. Well, you know, speaking of the strange parts of being an opera singer, I'm curious also, apart from traveling, you also work really weird hours, but you have to do this very strange physical thing. It's a very specific kind of singing, which, as you said, it's analog. You're projecting in a very large space. I imagine that's difficult to eat before you do that. And they're often very long things, these great operas. 
And so I imagine you often finish really late. When do you eat? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm going to take it even a step further because it's it's not just that during the performances we are basically night owls, which mm-hmm. is the case. You know, we're, we're getting off of work at 11 p.m. or midnight or, you know, sometimes even later than that if it takes a while to get out of makeup. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're getting off of work at 5 p.m., you work a normal 9 to 5 or something like that, you're not going to bed at 6 p.m. You know, you've got to decompress, you've got to have dinner, you know. So during performances, yeah, I'm up until 4 in the morning easily. I was up right now just during quarantine times, as we're calling it. Um, (laughs) I'm edging more towards the night owl thing. I was up until 5 in the morning last night. Oh, my goodness. But the the, the crazy thing is actually that our schedules are so topsy-turvy that that is the picture of what is happening during performances. Mm. During rehearsals, you know, we have to get there. Usually rehearsals, and this is a, <laughs> a vast generalization, but mm. rehearsals almost always at a house, you know, like the Metropolitan Opera, for example, they take place between about 10 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. Mm. Um, you know, so during rehearsals, I actually have to get up, you know, usually like seven or eight in the morning to be able to warm up, get some uh-huh. breakfast, look, you know, presentable <laughs> <laughs> and get to work. And so, you know, it's a little later than the nine to five kind of thing, but mm. we, we are starting a lot earlier in the day. In fact, when we do final dress rehearsals and anything on stage, we're doing them starting at about 1030 in the morning. Whoa. Um, which, you know, that's when it starts. If we have to be there for, say, a dress rehearsal of any sort where they're putting us into hair and makeup, we've got to get there an hour and a half earlier to be able to get into hair and makeup. Mm-hmm. So I'm showing up to work at the Metropolitan Opera at about 8.39 in the morning, you know. Wow. So, you know, that that is a huge portion of our life, yeah. uh, this rehearsal period. So that happens. And then the performance area, which knocks us into night owl mode. And then we're flying all over the world, you know, landing in different locations, trying to shift our time clocks to wherever we are. I'm telling you, my body has no idea what time it is right now. (laughs) I, my entire being is like, what year is this? I don't know. Yes. Yes. um, But Honestly, with the eating thing, it's it's really subjective. Different opera singers need different things. Mm. For me, I don't prefer to eat before a performance, kind of for the... <laughs> The, the, why you would imagine, you know, I, I, my diaphragm is pushing everything up. Yeah. It's just a lot more comfortable to not have any food in there. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I prefer to eat after the show. You know, I'll, I'll have a pretty big late lunch or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, mm-hmm. that'll last me well through the show. If I'm doing a really long show, then I bring some <laughs> snacks. Honestly. You know, <laughs> some snacks that aren't going to gunk up yeah. uh, my voice. So no dairy. Yeah. For me, I, I'm allergic to oh. wheat, so I'm gluten-free, but anything that's bread-like is also going to kind of get my acid reflux going. So mm. if I'm at a show that I'm usually bringing something like dried fruit or nuts, um, plenty of water. I stay away from bubbly water because, you know, I'm burping. <laughs> um, <laughs> have definitely accidentally done that on oh stage before. Fun fact, it actually stops the sound. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> But, um, it's a bubble. It is. It's a bubble. It it, it just literally stops the sound. Um, I'm basically a 14 year old boy at heart, so this makes me <laughs> giggle. 
Well, so another a part of the, the strange life of an opera singer, I mean, obviously, to state the obvious, you guys are musicians, touring musicians, but unlike, say, a rock musician going on a tour, a rock band, I guess they typically spend like one or two nights in a city and then they move on to the next city. But opera singers typically spend like, what, a month, six weeks, depending on the amount of rehearsal, how long the performances last. But say, you know, for Ofeo, I think you were in New York for, what, four, six weeks? Yeah, I was about two months for that one. Yeah. Oh, wow, two months. So like, where do you live? <laughs> because New York is not your home base. No, no, no. Atlanta, Georgia is my home base. Um, mm. We basically live in sublets for the most part. So mm. opera contracts, like you said, they can be kind of anywhere from a month to about three months. It really, wow. it depends on the situation. Summer festivals do tend to be longer contracts. Santa Fe Opera, for instance, this summer, Lord Willen of the Creek, don't rise, as they would say, where I come from, <laughs> if, if we get lucky yes. enough to be able to do the, the summer festival there. You know, I'll be there from the middle of June until the middle of August. So that's that's a pretty solid mm. two months there. In those situations, for the most part, uh, we're responsible for, once again, for all of our expenses. So uh, they, yeah. they will reimburse travel. Uh -huh. There are some houses that are set up well to give us rehearsal pay. Mm. And that is a very, very small percentage wow. of houses that are able to do that. Um, wow. You have to keep in mind that opera houses, by and large, well, I can't think of a single one that isn't, they're all nonprofit. Mm -hmm. You know, this isn't Broadway. Um, yeah. Broadway is absolutely for profit uh, yeah. and more power to them. That's, that's yes. amazing. But opera companies are nonprofit and... You know, uh, the United States is not currently in the business of supporting the arts in a really uh, strong mm. way. So most opera companies can't give rehearsal pay. So, the, you know, the, the housing costs are coming directly to wow. us. You know, so it, there are some situations that are a little different. I know, for instance, Houston Grand Opera, if you make below a certain per performance fee, I believe that they take care of your housing, or at least they used to. Uh, Santa Fe Opera, once again, whenever they bring an artist in, they actually give them a house and give them a car. Ooh. That kind of offsets the fact that the per performance fee for most summer festivals is not terribly uh -huh. high. Um, uh -huh. The goal with a summer festival, quite honestly, is to end up in a place that's really pretty and get to enjoy a really pretty place. <laughs> but yeah, the housing is basically on us. And for the most part, I use Airbnb or VRBO. Or mm -hmm. if I'm in New York, I have a specific furnished corporate sublet kind of uh, situation that I go through. There are different kinds of gigs, though. That's just yeah. the opera side of gigs. Right, right, right. Yeah, if I'm, if I'm doing a concert or a recital, um, in that case, then recitals, I'm usually the one footing the bill. Uh, very often, Whoa. I'm also footing the bill for my pianist as well. It, it depends. It's, it's really, it's kind of 50-50 on that. Mm. But with concerts for orchestras and stuff like that, very often they fly us in, they put us in a hotel. We might be in a hotel for five days, five or six, you know, maximum yeah. for a, a concert gig with an orchestra. But it's quite traditional that they are the ones who pay for the, the housing in that situation. But Interesting. Yeah. I think that opera singers, it's the last place in the world where you need multiple super fancy 
long gowns, you know, the most formal, it's like you're going to a prom every single night. Uh (laughs) Like, how many do you own? Where do you buy them? And where do you keep them when you're not wearing them? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I, (laughs) how many do I own? God, I don't know. I'm going to, you do have to provide your own, right? Yes, uh, for for recitals, for concerts, for uh, public appearances. Sometimes, you know, if if I'm in New York, a lot of times uh, in the spring, that's when the gala season is. So they're asking me to yeah. partake in, you know, be, be there as a support or to sometimes perform. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I I think I probably have about forty to fifty gowns at this point. Whoa, yeah, and really they they span a lot of different years and for me a lot of different <laughs> sizes um which is very useful yeah but i'm lucky to have a place in atlanta that has some pretty decent closet space um and i basically have a, a double closet in my bedroom where one half of it is entirely gowns wow in fact, I, I walked in one time from a gig and looked into my bedroom and the closet had fallen out. <laughs> the, oh. Literally had fallen out because the gowns were too heavy. I had to have uh, the container yeah. store come in and install some harder, you know, more, more sturdy equipment in there. Once again, the cost of the gowns are entirely on us. And that's wow. a pretty difficult expense to write off, actually, when it comes to expenses. You know, the sublets are a lot easier, purchasing music, mm. these kinds of things. But I've, I've heard of a lot of yeah. opera singers, you know, if they go through an audit, having to basically defend that they wouldn't wear this on a regular day. You know, that this is... <laughs> and I'm not even joking. It's crazy. I mean, I mean... <laughs> They're beautiful, but yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but you know, there are a couple of things that I'm looking at when I'm purchasing gowns. Number one, if I ever walk into a Macy's, I'm going to look at what formal and semi-formal oh. attire they have, because yeah. at this point, I just kind of collect dresses because I know that I'm going to need different looks. You know, if I'm in New York, mm-hmm. I have to keep a mental list and I really should just actually start a spreadsheet. Um, but I, I have to keep a list of what gowns I have worn for what performances and how long it's been since I've worn that gown. Because if I'm going to be back in New York doing another performance, I don't want to wear the same gown that I wore at this other performance three years ago. I Amazing. really yeah. try to keep that varied. And then the other side of it is that Just, you know, if there is something that is like a very publicized event, something like the Richard Tucker Gala, which is usually Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. broadcast, or for me for this last year, the last night of the proms with the BBC. Yes. You know, that that is, you know, put out to literally billions of people. (laughs) You know, I I wore three gowns for that. And the last of which was this creation that was built by an amazing woman named Donna Langman and an amazing designer named Jessica John that featured the bisexual flag in kind of dive yes. into the underside of the cape. You know, I'm not getting funding from the BBC to have that made. You know, this is entirely wow. a decision yeah. on on my own and I'm I'm so glad that I did it. But it is very expensive. These are not, yes. <laughs> you know, that's why, quite honestly, I'm going to Macy's for a whole bunch of other gowns. Yep, yep. You know, and especially, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, as a plus size woman, it's difficult to buy off of the rack. I'm so mm-hmm. glad that we're finally heading into a world where plus size people have better access to 
more clothing, but mm. even still it's difficult. So I do a lot of online gown shopping. I know designers that are, you know, they do prom and mother of the bride and quinceanera and all sorts of, you know, those kind of yeah, dress yeah. designers. I know which ones work for me. I know what styles look good on me. And I've got a great alterationist here in, in Atlanta, <laughs> you know, so yeah. I just kind of, you know, it is one of those like in between gigs thing that I do. I come yeah. back home and I have a, a pile of dresses that I need to take to the alteration uh, lady to have redone or done for the first time you know but once again Amazing. that's an expense of being a woman in this career absolutely yeah. you know we've been talking about all of this travel and I'm wondering do you have a sense of how many days you were actually at home in Atlanta <laughs> in 2019 and since you're not at home for the vast majority of the time how do you kind of keep that sense I mean, everybody needs some kind of you know, home. I know you take your cat on the road for a good chunk of time. Is that how yeah. you, is River how you find a home on the road? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I always say that home for me is, <laughs> it's kind of three components. It's my actual home, my, my condo, mm. the friends and family that I have, and my cat. <laughs> and River, <laughs> my cat, is absolutely 1000% a a piece of home that I can take on the road with me. So yeah. if if I'm on a long gig in the United States, anything over about three weeks, she comes with me. I, I don't travel internationally <laughs> with her. <clears throat> Luckily, no. I don't have to very often. And she has a secondary home with my best friends. You know, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a really, really wonderful setup that, you know, my best friends really enable me to be able to have a piece of home on the road with me. Yeah. I also fly yep. my friends and family to come be with me for portions of time. Mm. You nice. know, my, my best friend will fly in over the weekend sometimes. Uh, and just being able to have some familiarity really, really helps for me. Yeah. To answer your first question, I haven't done the math on 2019. And I'm curious, I really should do the math on that. But I remember doing the math on exactly how long I was home on one of my previous seasons. And I discovered that I had, <laughs> in like, I think the calendar year of 2016 or something like that, I had been home 35 days. Whoa. Yeah. And that included half, like Whoa. half days, like travel days. Basically any day that I could like step into my house, that was definitely counted because otherwise the <laughs> figure would be just absolutely depressing. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. That's mind-blowing. Yeah. I, I want to say, like, that was one of the heavier seasons for sure. In mm -hmm. general, I would guesstimate that I'm home probably 10% of the year. Wow. 80 to 90% of the year is definitely out on the road, or it has been thus far. Quite honestly, at this point, I'm starting to make adjustments. Mm -hmm. This pace has been workable for mm -hmm. uh, a few years, but not sustainable. And I yeah. am interested in longevity. You know, I, I don't know if I'm going to yeah. want to yeah. be singing when I'm 70 years old, but I want the option, <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> so right. Um, right. <laughs> one of the hardest things about this career is actually finding your threshold and mm. You, you don't find your threshold by seeking it out. You, you find your threshold by barreling right through it and looking back and going, uh -huh. oh, that's where it was. <laughs> 
you know, and I'm, I'm very lucky that I have a team around me who are all on my team, very, very much on like, yeah. not just Jamie Barton mezzo-soprano team, but also Jamie team. And they, yeah. they yeah. know when I'm doing well, they know when I am not. And mm. there have absolutely been times where I just, you know, was travel weary, mm. you know, and I just needed to be at home. And so we have started to add in, actually, I've started to add in sabbaticals into my uh, schedule, which I think will do a really, really good thing for me in terms of the longevity component, being able to take off wow. two or yes. three months at a time every three, three-ish years, you know. And also not trying to fill my schedule up, you know, so completely. Taking a week off here and there, you know, making sure I've got time at home to be able to work on learning music rather than having to try and cram this music in on the road when I'm singing another project, (laughs) Um, which happens a lot. (laughs) I'm also really, you know, I, I look at the pie chart of my life in the last, oh gosh, decade, and it's been at least 75% career focused, mm. which, which I love. Mm-hmm. I really, really love. But because I have been feeling more of a craving of balance in my life, I'm actually trying to give that to myself right now. I'm good reserving some of the day for work. But other mm-hmm. than that, I'm cooking and I'm going on long walks <laughs> and I'm sleeping at all hours of the day. Great. Much to the chagrin of my cat. <laughs> um, but also connecting with a lot of my friends mm-hmm. and my fellow artists. And quite honestly, we're working together with our union to create a soloist coalition right now to really address the concerns of solo artists, which mm-hmm. has been a struggle, I think, with our industry just because we're all itinerant. We yeah. all travel so much, it's impossible to schedule meetings for people to to get together because rehearsals uh, you know you never know when you're going to be called and so we're we're trying to create a space uh, within our union and I think that you know focusing our attentions on laying the groundwork for a healthy place for our industry is is a really good way of moving forward in this very odd time. <laughs> so I'm just trying to yeah. uh, take positive steps in the present, both for me and for the arts and for my own career. That's really, really interesting stuff. And I appreciate your sharing it because I know that talking about what you have to pay for and stuff that can be, it's a little much to ask. So I appreciate your answering those questions. No, I'm, I'm delighted to, truly. This is something that we all go through. It's, you know, the, it, this isn't something that is unique only to me. So I think it's, it's an interesting thing for the layperson to get a glimpse in on. Jamie Barton, thank you so much for joining Working. Oh, I'm delighted to. It actually gives me a good reason to get a shower today. So I, I appreciate it. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. June, one thing I really loved about your conversation with Jamie is how much you both focused on the fact that creative jobs are jobs, right? Like a majority of the work that artists do isn't what we think of as maybe quote unquote creative. It's the stuff that you have to do in order to be able to make your art. But do you think of that stuff as part of the creative process? I definitely do. And I also love that she was so willing to kind of demystify that stuff. It tends not to be written about or or kind of portrayed very much. And I just find that sort of thing fascinating. But I definitely do think that it is the very stuff of creation and creativity. I imagine there are a few people in the world whose talent is so immense that they just have to kind of sit at the keyboard and just touch a key and everything magically appears, you know, a brilliant work of art. But For most humans, it takes labor. And for most creative work or for much creative work, it's the kind of equivalent of doing scales when you're learning the piano. It's repetition of helping you get better of whatever it is you're doing, writing, composing, dancing, designing or whatever. So I I just think that is just an essential part of this work. Don't you agree? Yes, I absolutely think so. And I think it's even more pronounced with actors and opera singers and and other creative jobs where you are both the painter and the Mm. paint at the same Mm. time. You're, you're, you know, you're the material that the art is made out of and the person making it. I, I think that's even more pronounced in in that case. And, you know, there's a lot of details in here that I was actually frankly surprised by. I did not realize that, you know, even at a high level, an opera singer has to provide their own housing when they go to a gig. I mean, it's a union thing in theater that if you're an actor and you're gigging at a theater out of town, they have to provide you housing at their expense. And so I was very surprised by sort of how much of a financial burden, even more than I had assumed there is on the individual artist in the opera world. Yeah. And I also know that they don't want to, you know, I think quite rightly, they don't want to appear ungrateful or entitled by seeming to complain about the situations that their work puts them in. But endless traveling, whether you're Doing it because you're an opera singer or a management consultant, it gets old very quickly. It is not like being on vacation. And I think we're all maybe getting a little too much of it now. But being in your home, (laughs) surrounded by your things and your research materials, your books, your desk that's set up just so, you know, your bed, all of those things are part of a routine that really helps support creativity. And it can make a really huge difference when it does come time to just get down to work. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things that I liked is that, you know, for her, that's recreated by bringing yes. the cat on the road, yes. right? That it's that, like you have to have something of homes that you have some feeling that you have a home yeah. base. Yeah. Well, I have to say we have a very exciting development in this week's episode, which is it's our first ever request for advice. It's so I'm so happy to get this email. We would love to get questions from more people, but we're super excited about this one, which comes from listener Sharon, who will always have the honor of being the first person whose question we answered. I'm sorry to disappoint longtime mom and dad of fighting listeners, but it's going to be read by Isaac, not by Shasha Leonard. Well, I will try to uh, fill those melodious shoes, June. Uh, thank you. So here's our letter. It's from Sharon. Dear Working, 
I'm inspired to revisit a short story that I wrote a few years ago, which received a vague note asking for changes and improvements from the editor to whom I submitted it, and to which I've never been able to finish. What do you do when the editor requests changes and you don't understand what they're asking for? I asked for clarification, and the answer was even more vague. I can guess what the answer may be, but I'd be happy to hear from more accomplished writers what to do in such a situation. June, you have so much more experience as an editor than I do. <laughs> what, what do well, you think? I think the bottom line is you do have to have a rapport with your editor. Um, that's not negotiable. And if you really just don't understand each other, it's just never going to be a productive relationship. There are obviously many different kinds of editing relationships of different kinds of editing. There's the kind of editing that you're obliged to respond to, whether you want to or not, almost, because it's a condition of publication. When I was an editor on the tech side of Slate, if a writer just absolutely rejected the changes or additions or cuts or questions that I requested, that meant they just couldn't be in the magazine. And there can be, of course, and should be back and forth, debate, spirited defense on the part of the writer for a particular section or a point or a turn of phrase. But if you just can't agree, well, it just doesn't get published wherever the editor works. But then there is a different kind of editing that's more kind of like advice. There's a spectrum between low stakes feedback and do it this way or it doesn't happen here. I mean, there are obviously a lot of points on that uh, spectrum. But if you and your editor just do not see things the same way and aren't able to communicate, I think it's just very hard to get much out of the relationship. You have to trust their vision and their taste and their style to put in the work that is required to change your work. There have definitely been edits that I've gotten as a writer, too, where it just seems so huge and it's so daunting and it's such a big change that it really shakes your very conception of the piece that you're working on. And that can be really hard. But in my experience, what comes out of that is almost always better. But they do have to explain why they're suggesting this new approach, why they think it's better, be clear what they want you to do to get to this new place. And if you're not able to understand where they're coming from and what they're asking for, it might just be that their vision isn't worth pursuing or it's just not a good match. But one final thing I'll say after a certain point, there's no point in pushing for more feedback. Editors have limited time and bandwidth, and chances are you've gotten what you're going to get from this exchange. It's time to move on to another editor, another reader. You know, there's only so much you can get from people for free. Yeah, totally. I completely agree with that. My feeling about this question breaks into sort of two different categories. There's the specific question about this piece and that yeah. editor. Uh to which all I can say is like, it's been a few years, they might not even be at that journal anymore, that magazine, or, you know, like that door is probably closed anyway, and you didn't really have a good mm -hmm. rapport with them. So don't mm -hmm. bother pursuing it anymore. You know what I mean? So I would say for the specific thing of this story, you've put it in a drawer for a couple of years, forget about their notes reread the story, see what you think. You're going to see things that you want to change and have fixes you want to make, things that don't quite sit right with you. You know, do that pass and then start to show it to readers you trust, friends, maybe family, who knows, and then get from their feedback, you know, start to think about a rewrite if you want to do one or just start submitting it places and see what happens. 
Then there's the larger question, which has to do with what do you do when you get feedback that you don't Mm -hmm. really understand? And part of it is that it might just be a sign that that's not the right person to give you feedback. But another thing to think about whether you understand the feedback or not is always trying to listen for what I've heard writers call the note behind the note. Because often people are really great at identifying a problem and less great at suggesting a solution that actually works for you, the artist, in the work of art that you are making. Because that's a kind of mind meld that can be very difficult to reach and can often take time in multiple pieces. Uh, You know, it's, it's sort of further down in the relationship. So listening for the note behind the note, which is like, what is the problem? What is provoking this? It might not even be the problem the person is bringing up. I know that sounds wild, but, but it could be something even entirely different. And so, So not necessarily taking the notes at face value, which is not to say dismissing them. It's actually engaging with them Mm. more deeply might help you find sort of a better direction to go in in your revisions. At least I found that to be so. It is very different, though, when you're writing like an article for a magazine and then the edits are much more functional and have less to do with that stuff and are also much more, you know, you have to take them. Almost all the time, you know, and so that's slightly different territory. But I think with with other suggestions, it might be that there's actually just another problem that the reader's having trouble articulating. Yeah, I, I really love that insight. Um, I think even in nonfiction and even in a, a more sort of transactional relationship, if you're not quite understanding what your editor is asking for, just seeing where they're finding a problem, that could still work. That could still at least gives you gives you a place to reconnect with and to puzzle through. Uh, So I think that's really very insightful. Thank you, Isaac. Thank you, June. And thank you, Sharon, for writing to us. Please let us know how it all turns out. Here at Working, we want to hear from you. So if you have questions about writing, whether you're trying to write a novel or a great email or any other aspect of this strange thing called creativity, please send those questions on to us at working at slate.com. We'll discuss them in the show. And if and when we can, we'll put those questions to our guests. And if you enjoy this show, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial right now at slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Jamie Barton for being our guest this week. An enormous thank yous to our wonderful producer, Morgan Flannery. Thank you, Morgan. We'll be back next week for a conversation between Ramana Alam and TV and film director Domain Davis. Thanks for listening. Now get back to work.